Linda was coming in on the Red Eye Special from California about 7 o'clock after having kissed Chuck goodbye the night before. Linda Johnson, the older of Lyndon and Lady Bird's two daughters, had married Chuck Robb in December of 1967. Now, just a few months later, he's headed to Vietnam, joining nearly 550,000 American troops. What is your duty going to be in Vietnam, Captain? I'm very sorry, I don't know what duty I'm going to have in Vietnam. I'll be assigned once I get there. I expect to be there about 13 months. Excuse the press images from this scene show 24-year-old Linda surrounded by a scrum of reporters. Her hair's pulled back with a wide headband, and she's clinging to a coffee tin filled with brownies for Chuck's send-off to Da Nang. After their goodbye, emotional and all too public, she watches The Graduate and cries through the entire movie. March of 1968, the Johnson presidency is done. And Lyndon and Lady Bird, they know it. In fact, they've planned it for years. But like a lot of things people plan, it's not going to go the way they expect. From Best Case Studios and ABC Audio, this is In Plain Sight. I'm Julia Swig. Episode 7, No Exit. Linda arrives at the White House early Sunday morning. I wanted to be right there at the door with open arms to meet her, but I begged Linda not to get up. No, I want to, he said. So the operator called us in what seemed the gray early morning, and both of us were downstairs at 7 o'clock when she stepped out of the car. The president is going to deliver a live address to the nation that night. The subject, so far as anyone knows, is Vietnam. For more than two months, North Vietnamese troops and the Viet Cong have unleashed a ferocious series of attacks called the Tet Offensive. American casualties are high. Public support for the war is at an all-time low. The Tet Offensive had more effect here than it did in Vietnam. The Vietnamese stood up to it. In February, Walter Cronkite, the most trusted voice in television, weighed in. In a primetime broadcast on CBS, Cronkite essentially tells the millions of Americans watching that the war is pointless and lost. For it seems now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. But it is increasingly clear to this reporter that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. Cronkite is a Texan. He and Ladybird were undergrads together at UT, and the Johnsons consider him a friend. LBJ famously told an advisor at the time, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost Middle America. The day after the broadcast, Ladybird attended a ceremony honoring Robert McNamara, an early champion of the war who's now leaving the administration. Afterwards, she went upstairs to her bedroom in the private quarters 
and wept. It was all right to cry, and Lucy would have been proud of me. She holds aggressively to the opinion that if you don't cry, if you don't let off steam, something awful will happen to you. And she really fears for me. I have a growing feeling of Prometheus bound, just as though we were lying there on the rock exposed to the vultures and really not fighting back. I have the feeling of wasted opportunities, of standing still when I should be running. Linda has flown in that Sunday morning in late March on the red eye from California. She wants to be at the White House when LBJ gives his much anticipated speech on Vietnam. Her first words out of the car, after saying goodbye to the man she just married four months ago, are to the president. Daddy, I want to ask you a question. Why do we have to fight over there when so many people are opposed to the war? She looked like a ghost, pale and tall and drooping. We both hugged her and went upstairs. And then I took her into her room and helped get her clothes off, and she went to bed. Actually, she'd had a sedative on the plane, slept a little, not much. And it was, I think, part emotion and part the sedative that made her look detached like a wraith from another world. When I went back into Lyndon's room, he was crying. It's the first time since Mrs. Johnson died that I have seen him cry. But he didn't have time to cry. The day was a crescendo of a day. The president's bedroom fills with people, aides laying out newly tailored suits, staff bringing breakfast, Lucy's baby Lynn, doctors scraping samples of skin cancers from the president's hands. The speech was not yet firm. There were revisions, people to see. So he began to put on his clothes, still crying, and went to church with Lucy and Pat, something he does more and more. And I, exhausted, went back to bed, where I half slept for a couple of hours. On the way back from church, Lyndon stopped to see the vice president at his apartment. On the ride over to Vice President Humphrey's place, he pulls out the statement that he'll deliver that night. He reads it to Lucy and Pat. In his memoir, LBJ recalls that Lucy's eyes welled up with tears. The Vietnam War is not the president's only conflict. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. is extremely frustrated by LBJ's pace on civil rights. This morning, just a few miles away at Washington's National Cathedral, King stands at the pulpit. 3,000 people pack the space, filling pews, standing in the aisles, and at the back of the room. Another thousand sit outside, listening on loudspeakers. King's sermon is titled, Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution. All too many people find themselves living amid a great period of social change, and yet they fail to develop the new attitudes, the new mental responses that the new situation demands. They end up sleeping through a revolution. In a few weeks, some of us are coming to Washington to see if the will is still alive or if it is alive in this nation. We're coming to Washington in a poor people's campaign. We're going to bring those who've come to feel that life is a long and desolate corridor with no exit sign. 
Dr. King's message today is that social change won't happen on its own. It's going to take protest, mobilization, occupation. Washington, D.C. will be the movement's next stop. Then, on to Chicago for the Democratic Convention that summer. King's also opposed to the war, and he tells the press that he won't support LBJ's bid for re-election. Then, he heads to Memphis. This will be his last time in Washington. Only two people know everything that Lyndon will be telling the nation that night. Ladybird is one. Horace Buzz Busby, an aide, is the other. Sometime during the morning, Buzz came in, took up his place in the treaty room, and began to work on the speech. I had spent a good part of Saturday and some on Friday working on it myself. I felt quite positive about my few changes. Lady Bird is working on a part of the speech that's based on what she'd written in May of 1964 at Huntland. She'd rewritten it a few months ago, just before the State of the Union. Bird's been focused on Lyndon's exit from office for four years, the announcement he would make telling America that he won't run for re-election. I think what was going over and over in Lyndon's mind was something I'd heard him say increasingly the last month. I do not believe I can unite this country. This was Lyndon's question in the wake of Kennedy's assassination. Could he unite the country? Now, in March of 1968, he has the answer. He can't. Lyndon's public announcement will play out on live TV in front of millions. But it's also a private family drama. I talked to Linda and to Lucy. Both of them were emotional. Lucy crying, Linda distraught. Lucy's 21, married with a baby. She and Lyndon are close. Linda has started reaching out to wounded vets, service families. It's brought the war home for her. Linda and Lucy seemed to feel that Lyndon had been something of the champion of the soldiers, that his getting out would be a blow to them. What does this do to the boys? They will think, what have I been out here for? Was it all wrong? Can't I believe in what I've been fighting for? And it's not an abstract question for the Johnson daughters. Linda's new husband is on the way to war. Lucy's will deploy the next month. Linda said, with an edge of bitterness, Chuck will hear this on his way to Vietnam. An hour or so before the speech, Lyndon's secretary delivers his statement to the teleprompter, or the part of it where LBJ will announce a halt to bombing in North Vietnam and that the U.S. is open to peace talks. His other announcement will be fed to the teleprompter just minutes before the president goes live. I kept on looking at the hands of the clock and counting how long it was until 9. Just before 9 p.m., Linda, Lucy, and her husband, Pat, joined the president and first lady. And there we were in the familiar oval office of the president, the floor a jungle of cables, the brilliant glare of TV. And there was Lyndon, very quiet at his desk, the lines in his face very deep, but a marvelous sort of repose overall and the seconds ticked away. President Johnson is now in his office in the White House, preparing to report to the nation on the war in Vietnam and other matters. There's a great photo of the moment just before LBJ delivers his speech. He's rehearsing, ladybirds at his side, pen in hand, looking over his shoulder at the papers on his desk. 
This speech tonight comes after a lengthy review of the administration's overall policy in Vietnam. It is widely believed that Mr. Johnson may announce a new peace offensive in yet another effort to start negotiations with North Vietnam. But there's another picture I like even better. LBJ at the desk, looking straight into the camera. Ladybird sits alone at the very edge of the frame. It's an image of their unique partnership, never more consequential than in this decision of LBJ's, four years in the making. But also in the photo, you see each of them facing this moment separately. I went to him and said quietly, remember, pacing and drama. Now the President of the United States. Good evening, my fellow Americans. Tonight I want to speak to you of peace in Vietnam and Southeast Asia. No other question so preoccupies our people. No when other I hear them side by side, Lady Bird recording the speech into her diary and Lyndon delivering it, it's so clear to me how much this really was a shared presidency. With our hopes and the world's hopes for peace and the balance every day, I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time. Any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office. The presidency of your country. Accordingly, I shall not seek I shall and not I seek, will not accept I will not accept the nomination of my party. The nomination of my party for another term, for another term as, as your, your president. president. Thank you for listening. Good night. And God bless all of you. It had been said. Just a moment after he finished the good night and God bless all of you. I rose from my seat and went to him and threw my arms around him and kissed him. LBJ changes out of his suit into a light blue turtleneck. The White House switchboard rings off the hook. You want Bill Morris? Hello, Mr. President. Hi, Bill. The whole thing happened to change your mind. I'll share. That's it. It's been made up a good while. Lady Bird joins some of the calls. You can just hear the relief in her voice now that Lyndon has finally declared he's out. Hello? Yes. Well, you're sweet to call. And particularly when you have boys out there. When you feel pretty Mr. Johnson has now concluded his speech. And until he came to the very end of it, we all thought, of course, that the central point would be his offer to end the bombing of North Vietnam. Mr. Johnson has now bowed out of American political life with his dramatic and totally unexpected announcement tonight. John Scalley of ABC News is with me here. Before I get to you, John, I want to just want to be Lyndon eats some chocolate pudding. He razzes his staff and schmoozes with his friends as they absorb the news. Asked by the journalists on hand if his decision is irrevocable, he says completely. It must have been one o'clock or later when the last guest left and Lyndon went to bed. And I too, feeling immeasurably lighter, at last the decision had been reached and stated, and as well as any human can, I knew our future, although the actual exit is still nine months away if the Lord lets us live. Monday, April 1st, what we used to call April Fool's Day when I was a child, but there was no foolery about today. Public opinion polls about LBJ literally flip overnight from 57% disapproval to the same number in support. For Ladybird, this is day one for planning for their post-presidency. 
her historian journalist impulses kick into overdrive as she focuses on plans for the LBJ library, the oral histories, audio tapes, and documentary footage that chronicle their time in the White House. A lot of what we're hearing in this show is the result of that work. Two days after Lyndon makes his announcement that he's not running again, Ladybird accepts an invitation to come relax for a few days at the Palm Beach, Florida villa of Marjorie Merriweather Post, heiress to the Post serial fortune. Actually, villa doesn't quite capture it. The place is enormous. 58 bedrooms, 33 baths. The bathrooms have gold fixtures because Marjorie Post felt they were easier to clean. The quote-unquote villa was built in 1927, just before the Great Depression. It's called Mar-a-Lago. We arrived at Palm Beach a little past seven, and there was Mrs. Post at the door, calm and regal, the last of the queens. She was gracious and charming, but had completely the air of one used to command. It took me directly to my room, and when I stood at the door, I thought, I am in the bower of the fairy princess. Lady Bird dresses for the evening. There's a lot of diary airtime devoted to this. And then she heads downstairs. We had one drink, and I feel that that's rather what one does here. They have an elegant dinner on the terrace. The meal was delicious and exquisitely served. The only thing I missed was that I really couldn't talk to our hostess. You're so very deaf, and you never know whether she hears what you say or not. What interesting stories she must have to tell. Ladybird's Mar-a-Lago diaries are packed with voyeuristic detail, like some kind of delirious travel writer. She's obviously loving it. But that lightness is going to be hard to hold on to in the days that come. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Thursday, April 4th. Back in Washington, Lady Bird is getting ready to go out for the evening to a Democratic Party fundraiser. But things are about to change again, forever. It was sometime while Mr. Pear was fixing my hair, and Lindbird Bird had been listening to the TV. She came flying into my room. Mama, Mama, Dr. King's been shot. And from that moment on, evening assumed a nightmare quality. Good evening. 
The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, 39 years old and a Nobel Peace Prize winner, and the leader of the nonviolent civil rights movement in the United States was assassinated in Memphis tonight. A sniper's bullet cut down Dr. King as he stood on a hotel balcony in Memphis. Within an hour, Dr. King was dead. There I was with an elaborate hairdo, but the hands of the clock had stopped, and we were in a strange sort of suspended state. Everybody's mind began racing off in its own direction as to what this would mean to racial violence in our country, for the work of so many to try to bring us together. Lyndon finds himself in a familiar and terrible role, trying to heal the country in the wake of national tragedy, and just when he was getting out. America is shocked and saddened by the brutal slaying tonight of Dr. Martin Luther King. I ask every citizen to reject the blind violence that has struck Dr. King, who lived by nonviolence. A small group of Johnson friends joined the family in the president's dining room for dinner. It was a strange, mostly quiet meal. We had been pummeled by such an avalanche of emotions the last four days that we couldn't feel anymore. And here we were, suddenly poised on the edge of another abyss. If we were silent, the TV was not. It blared constantly. Statements from everybody, speculations on what would happen in various cities fearful beating up of tensions. The guests leave, and Lady Bird and LBJ are alone. But at least according to Lady Bird's diaries, they don't talk about King's murder or the potential that the country will erupt into violence. They talk about politics. LBJ had met the day before with Bobby Kennedy, who had jumped into the primary race just before Lyndon announced that he wouldn't stand for re-election. With LBJ stepping out, Bobby had come to ask for the president's support. Lady Bird often edited the transcripts of her audio diary, mainly for punctuation, people's names, small corrections. The next line of this entry, she scratched it all out, but you can still read it. She writes here about Bobby Kennedy. Lyndon said he had never seen such arrogance. That night, Bobby Kennedy stands on the back of a flatbed truck in a mostly black neighborhood in Indianapolis. Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. For those of you who are black and are tempted to be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. It's the first time RFK has talked publicly about his brother's death, and he's actually wearing Jack's overcoat. Someone in the crowd is holding a sign that says, Kennedy white, but all right. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. Maybe Bobby's words are what the crowd needs to hear. There are no riots in Indianapolis that night. 
The news of Dr. King's assassination sent shockwaves through the Negro ghettos and colleges across the nation. There are countless reports of windows being smashed, stores looted, buildings burned, police stopped. Harlem, the nation's largest ghetto, was the worst trouble spot. The National Guard was called out in Memphis. In Detroit, Negro snipers shot and wounded two police. Tallahassee, a white youth was killed by a firebomb. Other reports of violence come from Boston, Hartford, Connecticut, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati. At a press conference covered by the AP at the New School of Afro-American thought in D.C., civil rights activist Stokely Carmichael stands in front of a huge photo of Malcolm X killed three years earlier. When white America killed Dr. King last night, she opened the eyes for every black man in this country. When white America killed Dr. King last night, she declared war on us. There will be no crying, there will be no funerals. The rebellions that have been occurring around the cities of this country is just light stuff to what is about to happen. We have to retaliate for the death of our leaders. In Washington, D.C., Carmichael leads crowds on a march up 14th Street in Northwest. Someone throws a rock through a store window. Another hurls a trash can. Things escalate quickly from there. ABC's Keith McBee in Washington. In the nation's capital, there were scattered reports of disturbances all across the city throughout the night, but the major trouble was confined to a 14-block area about a mile north of the White House. Crowds began to assemble around Dr. King's Washington headquarters, and once the mob grew big enough, window smashing and looting quickly followed. Friday, April 5th. I was up early. Probably not to anybody in the city was it a restful night. I went into Lyndon's room for coffee. Lyndon has canceled all his travel. Lady Bird is scheduled to fly to San Antonio that day to inaugurate something called Hemisphere, a World's Fair-type extravaganza designed to show off Texas and its charms to the wider world. I was still firm in his feeling that I should go. Liz called and I told her it was on. We both recognized we'd have to make some changes in the speeches. The world had changed overnight. She and Stu Udall, Secretary of Interior, and a bunch of European journalists fly to Texas. Maybe the Johnsons are thinking they need to soldier on. But under the circumstances, the trip seems like a staggeringly tone-deaf choice. I sensed the feeling of uncertainty, tension in the air. As soon as we were aloft, I went to the PA system, and a quiet, serious voice said, we travel with a heavier heart today because of the tragedy of Dr. King's death. Later, Lady Bird Johnson would describe the five days she spent in Texas right after Martin Luther King's assassination as torture. In the moment, she tries to show the journalists traveling that there's more to America than burning cities and assassinations. They stop in Fredericksburg, 20 miles from the LBJ ranch, a place settled by German migrants in the mid-1800s. There are displays of silversmiths and pioneers, Indians, immigrants, a general store, all very colonial Williamsburg. I pointed out to them some of the articles that the pioneers had bought and sold. But the real world is never totally out of mind. At one point, Ladybird slips away to gather her composure. I took my vanity out to powder my nose. I crashed to the floor. I opened it, and the glass was in a hundred tiny fragments. Too anxious about the state of things back in D.C., she finds a way to make a graceful exit. There was a sense of expectancy of we knew not what, almost a foreboding. 
jumped in the car, I asked Jerry, my first chance, how's everything in Washington? His voice came back heavily for him, not good. Fires and rioting, trouble on 14th Street, supposed to be three persons killed. I finally got to bed after a day that had ran the full gamut of emotion against the background of mounting turbulence, the whole nation straining at its seams, and yet with a queer sense of ambivalence. I myself was nevertheless removed and encapsulated in a different world where we were just hearing about them, reading about them, as though they lived on the moon. Her official duties in Texas continue for three more days. While she's there, uprisings break out in over 100 cities around the country. On the last day of the trip, Ladybird is taking her contingent of European journalists along the scenic backroads of Southwest Texas. It was almost a two-hour ride, the rain misting the windshield, and a part of everybody's mind, I'm sure, at least mine was, in Atlanta. In Atlanta, Martin Luther King's funeral procession is traveling the streets from the private service at Ebenezer Baptist Church to the public memorial at Morehouse College. Good morning. Honors never before accorded a private citizen will be paid to the memory of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., who will be buried today on a grassy hillside in an Atlanta cemetery just 10 miles from where he was born 39 years ago. Jackie Kennedy is there, and Eartha Kitt, James Baldwin, Harry Belafonte. I'd heard just bits and pieces of what was going on. It sounded like a quorum of the Senate there for the funeral of Dr. King. Every presidential candidate, except Wallace. Even I had heard Nixon. Marlon Brando is there, and Bill Cosby, Sammy Davis Jr., and Aretha Franklin, Diana Ross and the Supremes, and Stevie Wonder. Mahalia Jackson, America's queen of gospel and one of King's oldest friends, sings Take My Hand, Precious Lord. A vast throng. I was not surprised that Senators Teddy and Bobby Kennedy were in the group. Not Lady Bird, not LBJ. The White House later cites the funeral as a security risk for the president. But the First Lady? I can't find any reason why she doesn't attend. Washington, D.C. had avoided the riots and unrest that consumed so many cities in the past few years. But when they began, in the wake of Martin Luther King's assassination, they may have felt long in coming, and they spilled over into every quadrant of the district. This is Eric Chapman, ABC News, Washington, D.C. The scene up the block included window smashing and looting and burning, policemen, firemen, troops, and tear gas. In four days, there are over 6,000 arrests, more than 900 businesses burned or looted, and over 1,000 people are injured, 13 killed. LBJ calls in federal troops and the National Guard. Within a few days, there are 13,000 troops in the capital, the most in D.C. since the Civil War. The White House turns to Walter Washington, D.C.'s new mayor, to help to try to calm the city. After briefly running the New York City Housing Authority, Walter's back in D.C. for this job. LBJ's appointed him by executive order just seven months ago at Lady Bird's urging. It probably seemed like an honor at the time. Now, 
he's got a major crisis on his hands. I just think that we've all got to not overreact. Nonviolence was what uh, Dr. King stood for, and I think the best thing that we could do is to remain nonviolent and to uh, try to get our cities in order. There was rioting and looting and fires on 14th Street, and way out down toward the capital. Fire hoses were being cut. There was a report that seven people had been killed and 300 people in District of Columbia Hospital. It's Palm Sunday. LBJ declares a national day of mourning. The communicants of this integrated Episcopal church, not very far from the heart of the devastated area, undertook their own memorial to Dr. Martin Luther King today in the form of a procession, a procession to the heart of the devastated zone. Less than three miles away in Shaw, Bobby Kennedy takes the pulpit at the New Bethel Baptist Church to plead for an end to the violence. Bobby and his wife Ethel sing hymns and pray and shake hands with the entire congregation. After the service, the Kennedys and the minister walk several blocks through the neighborhood to 14th Street, passing scores of burnt-out buildings. The images depict something almost too on the nose to be called a metaphor. RFK and his elegant wife walking through the rubble of the Johnson presidency. LBJ surveys the damage, too, but from a very different point of view. That afternoon, after curfew starts at 4 p.m., he's flown down 14th Street in a military helicopter. Before the flight back to Washington, Lady Bird and Stu Udall have a chance to speak privately. He is a very articulate man, but I sense he could not quite get out all that he wanted to say. I feel there is a withdrawal from him in his enthusiasm for the Johnsons. I would not be surprised if he got out of the cabinet. I was very, very tired, and it was somehow a rather sad conversation that left much unsaid. When Lady Bird arrives back in D.C. on Tuesday, riots have been raging for days. They'll go on for a month. I drove from Dulles to the White House with that sense of expectancy that you might have on a battlefield looking for trenches and gutted buildings. And of course, saw nothing, except very silent and deserted streets. The curfew was still on. All America is outraged at the assassination of an outstanding Negro leader. And America is also outraged at the looting and the burning that defiles our democracy. And we just must put our shoulders together and put a stop to both. The time is here. Action must be now. Tragedy breeds opportunity. It's a terrible truth that in the wake of national trauma, there's a moment of political solidarity, and often a short one, to accomplish things that in normal times are held up by divisions and debate. Thursday, April the 11th, we entered the East Room prolonged clapping. It was a dramatic setting. The signing of the third major civil rights act of Lyndon's presidency. The Fair Housing Act, 
LBJ's third major piece of civil rights legislation has been stuck in Congress for almost two years. Within a week of Martin Luther King's assassination, the bill finally passes. Coming up on In Plain Sight. There was an air of unreality about the whole thing, a nightmare quality. Tragedy brings Lady Bird and Jackie together again. She looked at me as though from a great distance. I felt extreme hostility. Was it because I was alive? And is LBJ really done with politics? Is it done with him? You know your husband's going to be nominated, don't you? I said, no, sir, not at all. There's not going to be any movement of that sort. And with their presidency coming to an end, Lady Bird is ready to tell it like it is. As you may know, my concern has been expressed in an effort called beautification. I think you also know what lies beneath that rather inadequate word. That's coming up next on In Plain Sight, Lady Bird Johnson. In Plain Sight was written and executive produced by Adam Pincus and me, Julia Swig. It's based on the work I did for my book, Lady Bird Johnson, Hiding in Plain Sight. Executive producers for ABC are Victoria Thompson and Eric Johnson. Our producer is Ann Carkey. Ali Gallo is our associate producer. Archival producer for ABC is Susie Liu. Associate producers for Archival are Isabel Dorval and Dana Schaefer. This episode was edited by Vanessa Lowe with help from Lindsay Cradwell and mixed by Dean White. Our theme music is Crossbone Style by Cat Power. Original music is composed by Sam Retzer and our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY. Special thanks to Kevin Pham at Best Case Studios. And thanks to Joshua Cohan, Liz Alessi, and Stacia Deshishku at ABC Audio, Mike Kelly and Beth Hoppy at ABC News Longform, and Ian Rosenberg and Kimberly Brown, who handled our legal and standards review. In Plain Sight is a co-production of Best Case Studios and ABC Audio. Some material was edited for clarity and time. Be sure to subscribe to the In Plain Sight podcast, and if you like what you heard, leave us a review. Listen to new episodes every Monday. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.